Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Malignant Invader by Frank Belknap Long A story of a horror from the depths. 1. Professor Williamson sat on an overturned dory and watched the tide recede with sullen resentment. He was alone on the beach. The bathers had dispersed, and the tide was ebbing very rapidly indeed. Gloomily, he ran his gaze over the long stretch of exposed flats, noting here and there the presence of small jelly-like substances of greyish hue which clung tenaciously to the mud and resisted the suction of retreating waves. He speculated for an instant as to what they could be. They didn't precisely resemble jellyfish, and they were certainly not mollusks—seaweeds, probably. Well, it didn't matter. What concerned him primarily for the moment, what irked and embittered him beyond all telling, was the reception which forty uninformed and hideously bigoted zoologists had accorded his The Subterranean World— a note on its strange inhabitants. He had delivered his address before the Ocean City Association for the Advancement of Science, and so carefully had he prepared and verified all of his notes that he had confidently anticipated endorsement for even the most audacious of his views. But his oration had been greeted with shouts of derision, and he had been driven from the hall by a torrent of impatient abuse. The sun— and the sharp sea air had a trifle restored his frayed nerves, but his thoughts were all despondent. He held in his hand a typewritten copy of the address which had cost him his reputation. He had been rereading it aloud, and carefully reweighing, by the light of all his experience, every startling assertion on every page save the last. That page contained a summary of his views— and so overpowering had become his emotion on approaching it, that he had been obliged to raise his eyes and stare for a moment at the receding tide. And it was during that moment of bitter despair that he had noticed the clusters of greyish ooze on the rapidly widening flats. It cannot be denied, he read, returning at last to the sheet in his hand, that men and women have, at various times and in various places, disappeared, simply disappeared. I have cited numerous authorities in support of my contention, and I am sure you will concede that I have made out what a jurist would call a prima facie case. It is my conviction that we are encompassed by forces of the utmost malignancy, and that we would go mad if we could see the shapes which burrow and tunnel their way through the earth beneath our feet. I believe that sentience and even intelligence can exist apart from the protoplasm which is the basis of biologic life, and that from depths of the sea and from cracks and fissures in the crustal earth there emerge from time to time forms which cannot be described or envisaged. They are survivals, I believe, of earlier cycles of animate evolution than that with which we are familiar, combinations of matter and force, of matter and energy, that attained to intelligence when the earth was still a molten furnace, 
and before the first of living cells were evolved from the intertidal scum of warm oceans. I contend that before protoplasmic life appeared on this planet, a more hardy intelligence-containing vehicle existed, that billions of years ago it walked or crawled through the appalling heat of the primordial and incandescent globe. Then, as the earth cooled, it found conditions on its barren surface no longer bearable, and went tunnelling in the depths. It still exists in the depths, and from time to time, in remote and sparsely settled sections of the globe, it creeps to the surface momentarily, and surveys the world which it has lost. At such times, if any man happens by, he will be seized and carried downward into the abyss. The existence of malevolent entities lurking beneath the surface of the earth is the chief reason why devils, goblins, demons, and demigods are accorded such conspicuous emphasis in primitive mythologies. I believe that such primordial entities have appeared frequently to men, and that they are the cause of the mysterious disappearances of which I have spoken. I have culled sufficient data from the evidence of the witnesses to such disappearances, to convince even the most resolute of sceptics that such a creature as I have postulated is in sober reality a denizen of our planet, and that it is a constant menace to all who walk the earth. From the depths it rises, seizes its prey, and descends. In shape it is apparently somewhat analogous to man, having a head, four limbs, and an elongated body, but in substance it is made not of living matter, but of a fetid and mucilant substance unknown on the earth, a substance that resists fire, is impervious to cold, and is revolting beyond description. It is said by those who have seen this horror, that it drools fetter and is luminous in the dark. Professor Williamson sighed deeply, and returned the paper to his briefcase. It is the boast of modern biology that it seeks earnestly to solve the problem of life's origin, and that it is receptive to all evidence that has passed the test of inductive scrutiny. But when I spend years in interviewing reliable people, when I relate merely what cool, sane observers have seen and heard, I am called a lunatic and an impostor. He rose angrily to his feet. I should have laid my observations before the Society for Psychical Research, he muttered. Sunset was purpling in the west as he turned to depart. Gulls were running agilely across the shiny strand, and great clams deeply embedded spouted jets of steamy vapour. Taking out a handkerchief, he wiped the mist from his glasses and set off in the direction of the boardwalk but he had not advanced more than a dozen paces, when something seized him about the leg. Clinton Willard Jones gripped the rail of the boardwalk till his knuckles showed blue. His lean, spectacled features were convulsed with horror, and his shoulders were jerking in a most erratic way. He had lingered on the boardwalk for the mere privilege of watching Professor Williamson, Having glimpsed the bowed, despondent figure sitting athwart the dory, he had stopped an instant to stare, and then, as recognition dawned, had loitered to observe and marvel. 
He knew Professor Williamson by sight, and he was fascinated by so rare an opportunity to study great genius in its unguarded moments. The Boswell impulse being for the moment paramount in him, he wondered precisely how such a man, a man of the calibre of Einstein and Eddington, would behave when he thought himself alone and unobserved. Young Jones was standing within twenty-five feet of the extraordinary man, and as the boardwalk was completely deserted, he was privileged to study attentively every gesture that the professor made, and to store up his impressions for systematic analysation. He watched Williamson's expression change from resentment to pride, as his gaze shifted from the sea to the paper in his hand, and then back again to bitterness, as he shoved his lecture into his briefcase and got angrily to his feet. Yet despite the fervour of his hero-worship, young Jones was not insensible to certain disturbing occurrences which were taking place at the same time on the flats. Like Professor Williamson, he had noticed the clusters of greyish ooze on the gleaming strand, and had speculated as to their origin. And like Williamson, he had at first dismissed them as of no consequence— but when the distinguished biologist arose to depart, he noticed something in connection with them that drove the colour from his cheeks and awoke in him a stupefying and overpowering revulsion. Slowly, so slowly at first that they seemed scarcely to be moving, the clusters emerged from the sand and went squirming about in the air. The spectacle of a quiescent jelly rising from the ground and Lashing about with no visible support was so alien to Jones's experience that he began perceptibly to tremble. Vehemently staring, he strove to convince himself that the clusters were at least tenuously supported, that some definite linkage existed between the jelly-like masses and the soft rack beneath them. He was for an eternity convinced that nothing but empty air streamed between the sand and the jellies, but by dint of much visual straining, he at last made out that attenuated, thread-like stalks ascended from the beach to where the latter danced about in the air. It was an enheartening discovery, but it proved only momentarily reassuring, for no sooner had the linkage become visibly apparent than the shape from which the stalks grew rose into view—a face, ropey and gelatinous, with glazed, purulently gleaming eyes and slobbering, shapeless mouth emerged from the dark sands and glared at Professor Williamson with a primordial ferocity. But the professor was bowed above his lecture, and never so much as suspected that anything was amiss. Jones clung to the rail, and attempted frantically to shout a warning. But his mouth refused to open— it was filled with his tongue, for one thing, his tongue which had swelled to such inordinate proportions that it kept getting between his teeth, and the breath had somehow all vanished from his lungs. He could only stare in feverish impotence, stare and stare, as the enormous green body of the horror emerged above the sand, and two long and gelatinous tentacles shot out and seized the professor about the ankle. The professor's fright was ghastly to witness. He screamed and shrieked and threw up his hands and 
strove frantically to escape from the creature's embrace, but relentlessly the thin, terrible arms closed about him, squeezing the breath from his body and binding his arms so closely to his sides that he was rendered powerless. Grey jelly masses on tentacles danced all about the horror's body, and high above its head other jelly masses squirmed and quivered and shook as the stalk supporting them responded to the creature's exertions. Its head, in profile, was revoltingly cephalopodon. A parrot-like beak curved above its cavernous mouth, and the base of its neck was perforated by a series of gill-shaped slits which exuded a dark and oozing fetter. But what filled the wildly terrified youth on the boardwalk with the most paralyzing revulsion was the thing's body. It was bloated and serrated and vaguely reptilian in contour, with a protruding navel and leprous razor-shaped shoulders, and it glistened shockingly in the twilight. The thing had emerged merely to its waist, but its tentacular agility was fearsome and appalling. Relentlessly, hideously, the screaming professor was jerked across the sands toward its scaly bulk. Jones shut his eyes. A nasty horror was fussing and churning at the back of his skull, and his heart was flopping about in the most alarming manner. For several seconds he remained thus sightlessly immobile. Then, with a tremendous effort, he directed his gaze once more toward the horror on the beach. But the professor had disappeared. Only the beaked and hooded head of the monster was visible, and that too was rapidly sinking from sight. All about it the mud bubbled aggressively, whilst greenish vapour swirled and eddied above its squirming antennal jellies. In a moment only a low depression on the glistening sands remained to mark the spot where the professor had confirmed, albeit reluctantly, the verity of his claims. Sobbing and shouting, the young man descended from the boardwalk and ran out across the beach. He advanced to the very edge of the depression, and falling upon his knees began hectically to upheave with his hands great clots of sea-drenched mire. His eyes were aglow with despair, and his chest heaved tumultuously. But though he cleared a great circular pit for yards about him, and descended into it up to his waist, he encountered no vestige of the horror. Desisting at last, he clambered from the pit, brushed the sand from his clothes, and made his way sorrowfully toward the professor's discarded briefcase. Its flap, in falling, had come open, and the subterranean world, a note on its strange inhabitants, were scattered promiscuously upon the beach. Reverently, Jones collected the precious sheets and returned them to the portfolio. Then, wiping a tear from the corner of his eye, he walked with averted head back to the boardwalk. Sorrow and remorse racked him, a consuming pity for a great talent prematurely effaced, and remorse for his own cowardice in succumbing to hysteria at a moment when a single shout would have averted the tragedy. Two.
Clinton Willard Jones cautioned his friend severely. It will rise in a moment, he said, but you must stop fidgeting about. It is essential that you remain immobile until it is completely clear of the sand. I assure you that it can't reach you with its tentacles. Professor Williamson was sitting much closer. You see that boulder over there? That's where he was sitting. The thing will have to emerge completely from the sand to capture you. Jones's friend groaned audibly. He was a tall, very pale young man, a little older than Jones, with intelligent, scholarly blue eyes, an extremely resolute-looking mouth, and an expansive, prematurely furrowed forehead crowned by curly auburn hair. "'I was an idiot to allow you to inveigle me into this,' he muttered. "'I don't credit one word of Williamson's thesis, but at the same time—' I tell you, I saw it. That's just it. You saw enough to convince me that there is something disturbingly strange lurking here. But I don't believe for a moment that it is a manifestation of the horror which Williamson has described. A hitherto unclassified species of cephalopod, I'd say. Some repellent survival from the upper Silurian. From what you have told me, it is clear that the creature is disgustingly like an octopus— and won't be pleasant to encounter. It was positively inhuman of you to suggest that I serve as bait. But you're armed, you know. You can riddle it with bullets. But didn't Williamson claim that the horror was impervious to that sort of thing? But you don't believe in Williamson's claims. You're convinced that the horror is protoplasmic. Simons gazed steadily into Jones's eyes. "'But you believe that it is primordial and virtually indestructible!' he exclaimed. Jones winced before the reproach in the other's gaze. He turned away, and began nervously to pace the beach. "'I swear to you that I am not sure,' he said. "'If I had been wholly sure, I would not have asked you to do this thing. And I only ask it now because there is so much at stake—the safety of a world, perhaps.' If the horror has emerged once, it will emerge again, and it may make depredations. And you think that by dynamiting its lair? Jones nodded. We can prevent it from returning to the depths from which it draws its sustenance. Freeze and destroy it, even if your bullets prove ineffective. I do not believe that it can exist for long on the Earth's crust. Williamson affirmed that when the surface of our globe cooled— it went tunnelling in the depths. Apparently it cannot survive without more warmth than our temperature affords. Simons frowned. "'Precisely how do you intend to proceed?' he inquired. "'I shall wait beneath the boardwalk till the creature has emerged from the sand. It will advance rapidly toward you, and when it is completely clear of its lair, I will press down the lever of the dynamite control.' The charge which we laid this morning is of sufficient strength to blow its sanctuary to fragments. If the horror returns to the tunnel before the explosion occurs, it may escape unharmed, but we shall at least have clogged the passage so that no other horror can ascend by the same route. It is probable that some fissure or crack has opened far down within the globe's crust, and that some old imprisoned horror of inner earth has emerged through it. I do not believe that we can— actually destroy the fissure with dynamite, but it is quite possible that we can clog its upper levels. 
I believe that beneath the depression in the sand, which you see there, he gestured toward the spot where the horror had risen on the previous day, there extends an unbroken tunnel, a tunnel running down to incalculable depths, and giving into a world of ghastly dimensions and unspeakable shapes, a veritable Gehenna of malign survivals from the earliest ages of the earth. 3. Simons had been sitting for fifteen minutes on the stone, when the monster rose into view. When he saw its vast, scaly bulk, he had a momentary impulse to rise and scream, to rise and run frantically toward the spot where his friend was standing. But by a tremendous effort of will, he conquered his agitation, and waited with valiant fortitude for the horror to advance. Swiftly, the tentacles came gliding toward him over the sand. An odour, fetid and indescribable, surged from them, whilst from the revolting body to which they were attached came a hoarse gurgling sound, which gradually increased in volume, until it drowned out the excited shouts of the watcher beneath the boardwalk. Soon the horror was within a foot of Simon's legs. Resolutely, Holding his trepidation very firmly to him, the young man rose from the stone and levelled his revolver at the creature's head. Three shots rang out in rapid sequence. The young man beneath the boardwalk almost bit his lips through in the intensity of his agitation. The shots had apparently pierced the hideous invader. Its great body heaved and trembled, and a purple froth gathered ghastly on its bulbous mouth. But it did not, as Jones had avidly hoped, retreat or collapse. Only for an instant was the progress of its tentacles arrested. Before Simons could so much as raise his arm to take aim again, they fastened tightly about his ankles, and he was jerked relentlessly toward the depression in the sand. The silence on the beach gave way to shrieks, as the stricken youth dropped his revolver and clutched desperately at whatever might serve to impede the progress of the arms that were dragging him to annihilation. His hands fastened for an instant frantically about the base of a clump of beech grasses, but so terrifically potent was the force which animated the jelly-like tentacles that the weeds were torn from the sand, roots and all, and he was jerked forward with a hideous velocity. Beneath the boardwalk, Jones bent and laid his hand on the handle of the dynamite control. For an instant, he feared that he would lack the strength to shove the lever downward. A veritable cyclone of trepidation had him in its grip. Ribbons of sweat were running down his face, and his limbs were shaking in a most sickening fashion. He knew he hadn't an instant to lose, but somehow, somehow he couldn't press down the lever. Then, all at once, he looked up wildly for an instant, and saw his stricken friend limp and helpless in the monster's grasp. The sight so appalled him that he experienced a sudden access of turbulent, unreasoning energy, and down, with all the vigour in his lean body, he pushed the refractory lever. The explosion was thunderous. Thin yellow flames seemed to dance for an instant in the air above the pit 
where the horror hovered. Then everything on the beach was wiped out in a billowy uprush of smoke and sand. Clear to the boardwalk the smoke swirled. High into the air shot a geyser of sand. Stones, too, were hurled upward, and dark fragments of less substantial shapes, amorphous and mutilated, dispersed in ascending crescents against the clear sky. With quaking knees, young Jones waited for the smoke to clear. Twice he attempted to cry out, but no sound came from his congested throat. He hoped desperately that his friend was safe, that he had been sufficiently far from the depression in the sand to escape the effects of the blast. His anxiety was soon appeased. A shout pierced the curtain of smoke, and young Simons came staggering toward him. His clothes were in tatters, and his face blackened almost beyond recognition. But his eyes glowed exultantly in their grime-rimmed orbits, and his speech, when it came, held peans of praise. "'You destroyed it!' he shouted. "'You blew the vile thing to fragments!' He tottered to where his companion was standing, and sat down abruptly on the sand. "'Nearly got me, too,' he groaned. "'The detonation was frightful. I thought I'd lost the top of my head. I had to feel for it.' He smiled. "'But I'm all right now. Will be in a moment.' "'Just a little faint.' Jones nodded. He was too overcome to be of much assistance, but he had sufficient presence of mind to withdraw from his coat pocket a small flask of brandy and hand it to the gasping man at his side. "'That'll help,' he murmured. "'I'm glad we got it. Glad. Damn glad.' Fifteen minutes later— the two young men stood stoically on the sands and poked with a stick at a small fragment of black, putrescent jelly. "'It's utterly lifeless,' said Jones. "'But I don't like the looks of it. See how it changes colour when I touch it? And it isn't as soft as it looks. I can indent it with the stick, but it's resistant, like putty, and hasn't anything like the flaccid fragility of such primitive protoplasmic tissue as one finds in most of the marine invertebrates. I'm actually inclined to believe that Williamson was right, and we have here something that transcends all normal experience. The tremor in his voice belied the measured detachment of his observations. All about him lay similar fragments, all that the explosion had spared of Professor Williamson's monster. An enormous mass of heaped-up debris clogged the entrance to the thing's lair, and the tide was coming in with a promise of merciful concealment, for a ghastliness hideous to contemplate. Jones was working furiously with his stick to dislodge a hard object at the jelly's core. After a moment, he pried it loose and drew it across the sand, till it was free of the clinging slime. Then, stooping, he picked it up and handed it to his friend. "'Professor Williamson's watch,' he said simply. Simons paled. "'The thing has evidently this in common with us,' said Jones. "'It can only assimilate organic nourishment. It swallowed the watch, but retained it in an undigested state.' "'I wonder,' murmured Simons, 
gazing with horror at the still unprobed fragments of jelly on the sand beside them. If it can digest bones! Jones shuddered. I suggest, he said with a grim finality, that we let the tides give this this uncleanliness a sea burial. I still believe, said Simons, as they walked slowly back to the boardwalk, that the creature was a cephalopod. Its arms were sheathed and hooked, and it had the beaked head and tentacular agility of a true octopus, and its body was relatively compact and sack-like, another characteristic of the octopoda. It was more lean and angular and and loathsome, I concede, than any known member of the genus, but I don't believe we need create a new classification for it. I propose we call it Octopus Williamsoni. And I propose, said Joan solemnly, that we never breathe a word of what we saw here today. I do not intend to mutilate the minds of children by introducing to the world a horror more authentic and ghastly than the grimmest of fictional ogres. It is conceivable that Williamson would have wanted the facts made known, but Williamson was a colossal egoist intent only on self-vindication, and he had no scruples about inflicting his theories on people too delicately sensitive to bear them with equanimity. He had the scientist's ruthless disregard for the awful consequences that occasionally attend such premature revelations of revolting truths. I know that deep beneath the earth's crust there lurks a tangible and malign entity endowed with a hideous intelligence, and that science will eventually awake to the menace which its presence there implies. But I refuse to shoulder the responsibility of revealing what I know to a world that is at least comparatively sane. Rubbish, retorted Simons. It is a pity, he muttered, after a moment, that we didn't secure a photograph of the thing. No one will believe that it is even a new octopus without a photo. Hello, ladies and gents. Ian here. Be sure to pop on over to our YouTube channel or Facebook page for regular updates. If you'd like to support our work, please consider taking a look at our Patreon or Bandcamp pages, or search for us on Audible. You'll find links to everything on our website, horrorbabble.com forward slash links.